for these years of fraud and misconduct, we are seeking an order to dissolve the NRA in its entirety. It's clear that the NRA has been failing to carry out its stated mission for many, many years, and instead has operated as a breeding ground for greed, abuse, and brazen illegality. That's New York Attorney General Letitia James on Thursday announcing a groundbreaking lawsuit against what has arguably been the most powerful lobbying organization in America, the National Rifle Association. The lawsuit accuses the group's top officials, starting with Executive Vice President Wayne LaPierre, of essentially using the NRA as a personal piggy bank, diverting millions of dollars in member dues to pay for lavish, all-expense-paid trips to the Bahamas, a safari in Africa, use of a 107-foot yacht in the Caribbean, golf fees, gifts, and much else. The suit by James, a Democrat, has enormous political implications given the huge sums the NRA has spent in recent years to boost the campaigns of Donald Trump and Republican members of Congress. We'll discuss the NRA lawsuit with Yahoo News' Hunter Walker and with Frank Smythe, author of a new unauthorized history of the gun rights organization. And we'll talk to our old Newsweek colleague John Alter about the comparisons between this year's presidential race and that in 1932 when FDR swamped Herbert Hoover during the height of the Great Depression, all on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined today by our Yahoo News colleague, Hunter Walker. Hunter, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Happy Friday, guys. Happy Friday. So um, quite a lawsuit filed by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, on Thursday, seeking to dissolve the NRA. Now, just sort of basics, the NRA is one of the most powerful lobbying groups in the country. Some believe it's the most powerful. Does this lawsuit actually have any chance of succeeding? Well, you know, she was asked if she might, you know, be pursuing sort of a lesser settlement if this is a negotiating tactic. And she she didn't shoot down that possibility, uh, to use a gun pun. Uh, (laughs) She said, you know, she just doesn't discuss those types of things in public. So I'm not sure it will go this far, but, you know, she named a quartet of current and former NRA executives, including, you know, the public face of the group, Wayne LaPierre. And, you know, this lawsuit is largely about their individual conduct as well. And I do think that they are certainly in hot water and likely facing penalties and potentially removal from the organization. Well, let's just back up for a second for those who have not had a chance to read up on this lawsuit about what the underlying allegations are, because they're fairly shocking. You know, essentially, Wayne LaPierre and a number of other 
top NRA officials, some of whom have by now left the organization, were using the NRA as a kind of personal piggy bank. But go through some of the specific allegations that uh, are made in this lawsuit, Hunter. Yeah. So one important thing to note is that the NRA is a not-for-profit corporation registered in New York. So it, Tish James, the attorney general there, has jurisdiction. And the NRA is essentially operating as a charity with donations from its membership. What the suit alleges is that Wayne LaPierre and these other executives used it, as James said, as a, quote, personal piggy bank. And it's basically a hundred and I believe 169 page lawsuit just filled with specific instances of alleged financial mismanagement. LaPierre comes in for particular scorn. Um, James described him as the central figure in the scheme. And the suit documents him doing things like taking, you know, multiple private jet trips to the Bahamas, paying for lavish meals paying for uh, things for his family, his private security, home improvements. So this is millions of dollars in essentially um, misidentified expenses. James accused the NRA of using what she described as an illegal pass-through arrangement with their longtime ad agency. And essentially the allegation is that LaPierre and the others would bill these things to the ad agency as expenses. The ad agency would then hand over a lump sum bill to the NRA, James said, without receipts that would encompass all of these different things without scrutiny from the NRA's board. So the evidence does seem to be pretty thorough. The NRA is actually in a dispute with this ad agency because as they were getting investigated, they accused it of overbilling and it kind of said, oh, really, and turned over all these documents. So the documentation is extensive. Now, this is a civil lawsuit, but do... um... Any of these uh, NRA officials, including LaPierre, have criminal exposure? Because it sounds like there could be fraud involved. It sounds like there could be tax issues here. What does it look like in terms of um, the potential for criminal charges? Well, you're, you're absolutely right, Dan. There are, there are wide-ranging implications from this suit on the criminal front, on the federal front, and then also for President Trump. So, you know, to go through those, James said that you know, just the way New York nonprofit law works, the attorney general only has civil jurisdiction here. But she stressed several times that the investigation is, quote unquote, ongoing and indicated that she could potentially make a criminal referral to uh, the Manhattan district attorney who would have the criminal jurisdiction in this case. She said the same thing when asked about, you know, potential damages to the IRS. In fact, she went a step further and basically said they are submitting a complaint to the IRS. So that's part of what I was getting at when I said, you know, these four guys could likely pay fines. I mean, it sounds like a very detailed note is being sent over to the IRS. And then there's the president, you know, and the most obvious implication for him is that, as you were alluding to earlier, the NRA has just been an extremely powerful, largely Republican lobbying group. They pumped around $30 million into electing Trump in 2016. So their current financial woes and all of this tumult you know, basically takes them off the table as a major donor. But it also goes beyond that because, you know, in addition to Tish James, we're seeing the New York State Department of Finance doing its investigation into the NRA. And, you know, 
as she was with these other things, James was coy when asked if, you know, they were looking into any of the NRA's campaign contributions. So there's a direct connection to Trump. The NRA came up in the Mueller probe because it also had connections to Russian officials. But more importantly, I think we need to look at the character of Tish James. Uh, This is a former Brooklyn councilwoman who later became public advocate in the city. And she was elected in 2018 in the special election to replace the disgraced attorney general, Eric Schneiderman. I spent time with her on the campaign trail then. And, you know, James came into office basically saying she wanted to set her sights on President Trump. She is investigating his businesses, which are headquartered in New York. And I think this case just shows that, you know, she's willing to use laws that have not been touched in a long time uh, to go after businesses. She's eager to, you know, investigate the president and his allies, and she's getting results on this front. You're talking about her setting her sights on all, but is she setting her sights as well on Gracie Mansion or Albany? I mean, she's got political ambition, doesn't she? You know, I have known Tish James um, for a long time. I used to cover New York City politics. Um, You know, she was a, a councilman in the area where I'm from. Attorney General was really one of her longest held ambitions. Uh, there's a lot of vacuums in New York, but, you know, part of the reason there's a vacuum in the upcoming mayor's race, and, and you're seeing a lot of non-traditional names jump in there, like sort of, uh, former HUD secretary Sean Donovan and this MSNBC pundit slash de Blasio aide Maya Wiley, it's not seen as a very desirable job. I mean, you know, you're not seeing names like Hakeem Jeffries, a high-ranking member of the House, a former assemblyman from Brooklyn. You're not seeing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, aim at Gracie Mansion because it's just sort of a thankless job where, you know, you have a lot of people targeting you for criticism. Although, uh, Hunter, it has historically been a stepping stone. I'm thinking in particular for Elliot Spitzer, who was attorney general and went on to be governor. But I want to we're going to have in a few moments uh, Frank Smith, who's written a terrific history of the NRA on to put this uh, lawsuit in historical context. I just want to make two quick points before we get on to um, other matters. First is I've been going to NRA conventions off and on for decades now. And what really leaps out at me is, you know, when you go to those conventions, Wayne LaPierre was so skillful at playing the sort of populist card, us versus them. The elites go after you and your guns because they don't like our kind of people. And then when you see the allegations in this lawsuit about the unbelievable lavish spending that he was doing on behalf of himself, billing the NRA for more than half a million dollars for private charter flights for him and his family to visit the Bahamas, talking about buying a $6 million country estate in Texas for his own protection after the Parkland shooting, all using NRA funds for this. It's pretty staggering. Wait, and, you don't and, think and it's under- populist to, uh, <laughs> to to put your, your niece up uh, at the Four Seasons for... Uh, uh, yeah. in, in many days at the to the tune of twelve thousand dollars, whatever. I mean, you know, I mean, one point two million in expenses uh, for personal trips, golf fees, and gifts for Lane Wayne Lapierre. It's it's pretty rich to see that. The biggest line item was a. $17 million post-employment contract. Yeah, yes, yes, $70 million. But of course, the other sort of, you know, point to make about this is Tish James, the attorney general, is 
basing the lawsuit on the NRA diverting funds for the personal expenses of LaPierre and these other executives. Of course, that means they had less money to spend on the political lobbying and and political contributions they wanted to make. Presumably, that's why Democrats like Tish James uh, and lots of others don't like the NRA. So maybe uh, she should be people should be thankful that the NRA funds were being used for these purposes rather than the purposes that they intended for. But let's move on to a couple of other things. Um, Hunter, you cover the White House. The president now is talking about giving his acceptance speech at the Republican convention in a couple of weeks from the White House. Can he do that? (laughs) I mean, you know, when he raised this possibility and he was sort of in a a sit-down interview, he'd already announced his intention due to COVID. to cancel his efforts. And and he continued this well after the lockdown to try to do a speech in a really old style convention in Jacksonville, Florida. But he, in this interview, sort of floated the possibility of doing it at the White House. And a lot of people immediately thought of the Hatch Act, which sort of pro, you know, broadly speaking, prohibits the president from using official resources for political purposes. And actually, the White House is supposed to send over a detailed invoice of any political activities that have occurred there so they can, you know, even be billed for the rooms and food if needed. So this definitely would seem to be a clear violation of that. However, I have to say personally, you know, I think the Hatch Act went out the window in the Trump era a long, long time ago. I mean, you've literally had the president advertising Goya beans from behind the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. So, you know, your question of can he get away with it? I, you know, they seem to have gotten away with a lot of this stuff. Uh, I think it's more of a question of should he get away with it? Well, also, yeah. And also, I mean, it was interesting because after Trump said he, you know, he wanted to do this, there was obviously a ton of outrage among liberals, but there was also surprising opposition from senior Republicans, including, you know, people like John Thune, the number three uh, Republican in the Senate. I think Ron Johnson as well raised questions about this. But then I read a, a piece in the Washington Post this morning by our old friend Karen Tumulty, which suggested that there actually is precedent for overt political announcements from the White House, uh, not uh, convention speeches, because there wasn't a need for that in the past. But Jimmy Carter in 1979, announced that he was running for re-election from the East Room in what she, Karen Tumulty, described as a somber nine-minute uh, ceremony. In addition to that, he did a an ad in that uh, campaign when he was running against Ronald Reagan from the Oval Office. So, you know, I wonder if Trump is not yeah, you know, this is something that Trump, you know, will be able to get away with because other presidents have done similar things. One more recent and and probably relevant example due to the current election is uh, people may recall the Rose Garden announcement in 2015, where Joe Biden came out with Obama and said he wasn't running for president. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think uh, the issue is the president is is exempt from the Hatch Act himself, but all White House staff, groundskeepers, everybody else who works there is not. And I think that's the issue that, you know, who's going to be the support staff for a speech like this? But 
look, the Hatch Act is, uh, you know, probably not the most uh, feared uh, statute on the books uh, in uh, American politics these days. More generally, where where do things stand now in the race? I saw some uh, uh, Bill Stepien, the new campaign manager, is suggesting that there's been a, a bit of an uptick for the president in the polls. It's not clear to me from uh, looking at real clear politics that there's any real trend there. But what's your sense right now? Uh, is the race tightening at all? Or are we still looking at uh, what to many say right now would be a uh, Biden landslide? Well, I, I do think there actually is a bit of forward momentum for the president. <laughs> I want to I want to, um, you know, make sure to contextualize that Biden Biden is way ahead. Uh, you know, Bill Stepien, who um, was formerly a political aide to Governor Chris Christie before uh, joining Trump's 2016 campaign recently took over the reins from Brad Parscale. And it is clear to me on the outside that President Trump's campaign has become a much more focused operation since Bill Stepien took over. They've been doing a lot more proactive messaging. You see the return to coronavirus briefings. You see the president sort of adopt a more reasonable position on masks. All of these changes are, are happening since Bill Stepien took over. But one thing that Stepien was doing already when he wasn't in the top role of the campaign was building out a lot of ground game for President Trump. And, you know, while Biden might have, you know, I often compare Biden's rise right now to Toy Story when sort of Buzz Lightyear, quote unquote, flies. And really, he has no ability to fly. He's bounced off of every lucky object and ends up on his feet. And that's kind of how Joe Biden won the primary. And it's also how Joe Biden is in the lead right now. He's infamously in that basement in Delaware. He's not doing a ton of events. And he also doesn't have a massive campaign apparatus. He doesn't have a lot of the ground game that you would traditionally see. And Stepien has helped Trump totally outstrip Biden in that regard. Of course, the broader context here is coronavirus. And I think even though particularly under Stepien, Trump might be running a quote unquote better campaign than Biden by a lot of traditional metrics, overwhelmingly, I think people are just angry about the state of the country in this pandemic. And that's why you're seeing, you know, Biden with this large lead that even with a change and and better strategy on Trump's part, I'm not sure it can be done. Yeah, I just wanted to you know follow up on that because it seemed to me that uh, what they are taking credit for here is that the president is speaking more about COVID, is doing these White House briefings again, and they're saying you know anytime the president is out there, that's going to help him. But he's talking about a subject that is profoundly depressing and a profound drag on his. Campaign. Campaign. So it's not clear to me that the more he talks about COVID, the better he's going to do when the numbers are as right. bleak as they are. Well, that's the point at the uh, what you just said at the end there, because if if the numbers started to turn around, then Trump's talking about it, particularly if uh, his message has changed and he is, you know, more you're responsible and talking about wearing masks and all those sorts of things, then then that will matter. But otherwise, it doesn't. And right now, the majority of the electorate uh, are very angry about what's going on in this country and, and the pandemic, and they want to fire him. So but, let's just be just... careful here, though, because 
I'm, I'm not saying that Trump is just talking about the coronavirus. We're, we're seeing, for example, this week, the effort to ban TikTok, the sanctions that just came out against uh, the leader in Hong Kong, Carrie Lam. That's a coordinated, you know, sort of week of messaging on China. Right. And, and it was, you know, we're seeing this sort of message come out of the White House. We're seeing this, act, this coordinated activity, whereas, you know, a couple months ago, it was really just chaos. So they're about to unleash or maybe they've already begun their their, you know, massive advertising campaign. And it's still not clear to me what the argument is going to be for the president's reelection. Is it just going to be focused on attacking Biden? He's been uh, he's being held hostage by the radical left and uh, we should all be scared of that. Or is there anything that goes beyond negative attacks on Biden and the Democrats. So I I think you you did hit on something that's definitely true there. Even with increased focus under Stepien, there is no single central message to the Donald Trump campaign. What I'm seeing is messages on a couple different tracks. There is, you know, Biden week on China. That's definitely one of them. There's what you were alluding to, Biden sort of captive to the radical left, the shadow president of Antifa. And, and I think, as, as Trump said the other day, someone who wants, quote unquote, no God in America. And then there's, I guess, the only one of the three that I think could be seen as a positive message. Um, and, you know, I was just talking to someone close to the president this morning and they were going on about how, you know, people remember how good they had it in January and February before the pandemic. So essentially still trying to run on the Trump economy. But I really think that is, you know, even despite some of the jobs recovery we've seen in the new numbers, that is a case that's just really undermined by the pandemic, which which just utterly wiped it out and was seemingly totally mishandled. Before we get to the Republican convention, we have the Democrats coming up the week after next. Your own bet right now as to who the Veep will be? If you asked me maybe two days ago, I would have said, as everyone is, that the smart money is on Kamala Harris. I still think that's true. But uh, last night I saw pretty much the only like tea leaf that's really made me turn my head, which is that Susan Rice seems to be getting rid, who is on the board of Netflix, got rid of a boatload of her Netflix stock last night. And, you know, hmm. interesting. <laughs> Although why would, would Netflix uh, present a conflict or is it just that she had so much of it? It wouldn't look too good for a uh, populist democratic party. Two different things. And I was, you know, texting with a, a, let's say an Obama world source about this as it unfolded last night. You know, you can't be on a board if you're um, going into office, but also there's sort of the Rex Tillerson move where if you can time the sale of your assets properly to taking federal office, you don't pay the same level of taxes on them. So so it is both politically and economically expedient to sort of get rid of some of your big holdings um, if you're preparing to take a, a high level administration job. Now, yeah. of course, with Susan Rice, you know, she seems set to be certainly in the Biden administration, if not VP. So so it could be, you know, uh, I could be overexcited about that, but it was quite a... Quite a yeah. I mean, the only real job, given she's already been national security advisor and, you know, U.N. Uh, ambassador, it would, would seem to be secretary of state. Yeah. And I think that really plays to her strengths. I mean, when I talk to Democrats and Biden allies about the veep stakes, the one thing that keeps coming up about Rice is... You know, they see 
President Trump as having damaged our standing in relationships abroad. And Susan Rice, with her international diplomatic experience, could be a good person to kind of go on a grand tour that first year and kind of reintroduce America to the world. Yeah, I mean, one one slight issue potentially for Susan Rice, and this clearly would have come up in the vetting, is who her clients have been and the consulting work that she has done since she's been out of government. She's got foreign clients, foreign governments uh, as clients, and I'm sure that was getting a very, very hard look, and she's not been terribly transparent about the work that she's been doing. So I just mentioned that as a possible issue uh, for her going forward. Anyway, uh, Hunter, will you be actually, uh, will there be anything to actually attend at either of these conventions? Um, is there any place to where you would go and watch anything or is, you'll just be sitting in front of your laptop? I, I'm so glad you asked that because, you know, one thing that I did want to add to our discussion of the, you know, the Hatch Act and the potential White House convention is that first off, whatever precedent there is, I do think that there is a case to be made that, you know, in terms of safety, having it at the White House where there you know, are testing protocols, there's pooled press, there's security is actually a good thing to do in the pandemic. But I still don't think the president is going to do that. I think for both campaigns, this is an opportunity to choose a statement location. And, you know, the Democratic National Convention Committee, which announced Biden's decision, said, you know, he's going to do it at home in Delaware. I've talked to some people uh, on the campaign who aren't aren't so sure about that. And I could see both Biden and Trump, you know, picking a location that helped underscore their messages. Trivia, I'll leave you guys with the last major party candidate to not speak at his convention was FDR in 1944. He was at a Pacific Naval base. Well, but but if you're doing uh, historical trivia involving FDR, let's also remember that uh, I think he was the first president to speak at a political convention in 1932. Presidents didn't go to conventions to accept their party's nominations before then. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got John Alter coming up on this pod, who is a uh, uh, expert on FDR, having written a book about uh, FDR's uh, first 100 days. And before that, we've got um, Frank Smith coming up to talk about the NRA. So, Hunter, thanks a lot. And we will be checking in in the weeks ahead. Awesome. See you soon, guys. All right. Thanks, Hunter. We are now joined by Frank Smythe, author of The NRA, The Unauthorized History. Frank, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks, Mike. This lawsuit filed by the New York Attorney General Letitia James this week strikes uh, a lot of us as a momentous event in the history of the NRA. You are the uh, preeminent uh, historian of the NRA Tell us uh, what you make of it and what you think this means for the organization. I think this is the first potential existential challenge to the National Rifle Association of America in its history and really to the modern NRA or the NRA since the so-called Cincinnati Revolt 43 years ago. Wayne LaPierre, the uh, executive vice president and CEO, has been in power now for tw more than 29 years, and he's had some challenges to his rule that he put down in the late 1990s. But this challenge that arose last year with Oliver North, Ted Nugent, and Alan West. Alan West now just made the chair of the Texas Republican Party, congratulated by Trump. 
These three board members became dissidents and began leaking information last year to the Wall Street Journal about the lavish spending by LaPierre. So Leticia James, the New York Attorney General's lawsuit and the specific allegations in that complaint didn't fall from the sky. We first heard about them when NRA board directors themselves put them in the public domain to try and finally curb and defeat LaPierre's apparent abuse of power. Frank, let me let me just uh, just interrupt that point because it's so delicious. It seems like Ollie North, of all people, is the whistleblower here who helped expose these abuses by the NRA. That's exactly right. That's tremendous irony. And so is Ted Nugent, right? The man who once boasted to High Times magazine about having avoided the draft, who's been incredibly cantankerous with uh, and disrespectful well, when President Obama was in office, and Alan West, who's an African-American board director and himself a right-wing Christian figure. All three of these people are the whistleblowers in this case, ironically. But Mike, the one thing you need to know, there's no daylight within these rival camps fighting for control over the NRA over politics. They all are united that gun rights is an absolute right. That is the linchpin of the entire Constitution. That is their belief. And that gun control is all being promoted by basically wealthy billionaires who happen to be Jewish. And each of these camps have been separately accused of anti-Semitism, which I think shows you where they come down ideologically. There's no daylight between them. Frank, since you're the uh, historian of the NRA, let's just step back for a moment and put this news in some historical context, because the NRA has uh, changed fairly dramatically since its inception. And you made a reference to the Cincinnati Revolt, which was a a key inflection point. So just for the benefit of our listeners, give us the very quick uh, history just to make the point of how this organization has changed and what that Cincinnati Revolt was all about. Sure, Dan. The NRA was founded in 1871 by former union officers in in trying to improve marksmanship among troops and able-bodied men in anticipation of future wars. And that was the NRA's mainstay for over 100 years. After World War II, they also incorporated many hunters, but it was always a firearms sporting organization. And then in the 1970s, a group within the NRA became agitated that the NRA was being soft, allegedly, on gun rights. And they were upset about the 1968 Gun Control Act passed in the wake of the assassinations of JFK, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and Bobby Kennedy. So they planned, they plotted a revolt, and in 1977, they managed to take over the organization and turn the NRA literally overnight into the nation's largest firearms sporting organization, into the nation's largest gun rights vanguard. But what they did, Dan, that's relevant today, is they also ended an experiment in democracy and transparency in the running of the NRA. They, for 50 years, from 1925, when there was an embezzlement scandal, up into the Cincinnati vote in 77, the NRA published their annual financial reports without editing them every year in American Rifleman magazine. After the Cincinnati revolt in 1977, these financial reports disappeared. The, the leaders of the Cincinnati revolt consolidated power, and they eliminated all oversight for ideological reasons. But by eliminating oversight, they opened the door to the corruption that has now mushroomed into the attorney general's charges today. 
We should uh, point out that the key figure in that 1977 revolt was Harlan Carter, who had um, a, a interesting past that it wasn't widely known for many years. Tell us about Harlan Carter and uh, what you learned about his background. Harlan Carter is the, uh, the son of a Border Patrol officer who himself later became the director of the Border Patrol. So he was a shift in leadership in, from the NRA because they had drawn before largely from National Guard and military forces. When Harlan Carter was a minor, 17 years old, he got into a dispute with a number of, with several Hispanic youths near his home. And uh, they had a confrontation. One of the boys pulled out a knife. Harlan Carter was holding a shotgun and he said, according to court testimony in his murder trial, you don't think I'll use this? And he shot the boy point blank in the chest. The boy fell to the ground, bleeding out and dying. The boy bled his, his friends Ramon Cassiano was his name, bid his two friends farewell. And then he reached his hand to Carter and he said, you're my friend too, as he was dying. And according to witnesses, Carter turned to him and said, you're my friend, nothing, as he died. Carter was convicted of this boy's murder, spent as a juvenile, spent time in jail. And then the murder conviction was overturned on appeal on self-defense grounds. Carter then changed the vowel of his first name from Harlan to Harlan and managed to keep the entire incident quiet for 50 years until after he took over the NRA and the New York Times discovered this and reported it in 1981. Now that seems like a quaint piece of history, but just this last fall, Wayne LaPierre, the current EVP and CEO of the NRA, referenced Carter in one of his columns as a way of brandishing his own ties to the Cincinnati revolt, even though he would never say those words out loud, and Harlan Carter is the only NRA leader of any era through the century and a half of the organization whose likeness is on display at NRA headquarters, in, headquarters inside the NRA National Firearms Museum on a tall pedestal in the middle of a display room showing you that this is an organization that changed fundamentally in the Cincinnati Revolt and is still following the path of that, of that takeover. Hailing as one of its uh, great statesmen, a uh, once convicted murderer, which is uh, <laughs> kind of a uh, delicious detail. Uh, and also the connection between Carter and Wa Wayne LaPierre. I, I didn't realize that, that LaPierre has lavished praise. And, and did they did they work together at all? Was was LaPierre there in 1977 during the Cincinnati Revolt? LaPierre joined the NRA one year later in 1978 when he was 28 after having worked as a substitute special ed teacher and then as an aide for, in the California State House for a Blue Dog Democrat. So, and he referenced uh, when he wrote uh, last year, and this is one of the only times he's ever mentioned Carter's name, he tries to keep it quiet. He said, I learned from great leaders such as Harlan B. Carter. He wanted people to know, hey, I come from that tradition. Forget about these people trying to oust me. I represent what the NRA has stood for since that time. So, Frank, give us your theory of the case for why the NRA, you know, has become such a cesspool of corruption. I mean, is it a story about power corrupting and absolute power corrupting absolutely? Or were the seeds of what we're seeing there now planted back when all of this was happening and Wayne LaPierre joined the organization? How did this happen? 
Well, I think it. I think the roots of this all come to 1977 and the notion that you mentioned: absolute power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. After the Cincinnati revolt, they eliminated transparency in the organization. So the NRA was no longer responsive to members, or at least didn't share information with them. Financial reports that were published every year for 50 years suddenly were no longer available in the magazine. And what the NRA has put out are just edited versions of the actual real reports. The NRA also in 77 consolidated power. Before the editors of American Rifleman and later American Hunter were peeps, one of the editors had come from the Saturday Evening Post. So it was a bona fide journalist and editor in his own right. After the Cincinnati revolt, everything went through three people that Carter put in place under him. So no, everyone had a report up the new chain of command. So this consolidation of power also eliminated any oversight in the organization, which had been set up in 1925 after the first embezzlement scandal in the organization. When you have an organization that is ideologically driven, what Carter said is that he has an unyielding, quote unquote, take on gun rights. LaPierre has more recently said that he has an absolutist take on gun rights. When you are ideologically driven, that means everything is for the cause. People are spending less time worrying about is somebody stealing money or are they spending too much money? Because over the past 43 years, the NRA has been a successful, has had a successful business model, as LaPierre has called it, by getting gun manufacturers to support the NRA and also spreading their ideology of gun rights throughout the nation and getting rank and file members of the NRA for most of the past 43 years to pay most of the NRA's, contribute most of their revenues through their dues. And it's these revenues that the leadership has been pilfering now, uh, according to the to the complaint, which is quite detailed, for, for, for decades. Has there been a widespread revolt among the membership, or does the ideology infect the members to, to so much that they're sticking with, sticking to their guns, as it were? Ide- ideology has infected the members to the point that uh, dissent is quite minimal. And only 7% of, NR- of eligible NRA members eligible to vote tend to vote in NRA elections. So these are a hard group of activists who tend to be even more conservative than the board. Just to give you a and the leadership, just to give you a sense, the NRA has tried to diversify the board uh, a little more so than it already is. And they tried to promote uh, a gentleman from Puerto Rico, Antonio Hernandez, to be on the board. And the way the elections are controlled, the nominating committee makes recommendations and voters uh, vote for 20 out of, let's say, 24 names on a ballot. So it's a very strange system designed for the leadership to maintain control. And they failed to get he was a competitive uh, rifle shooter from from Puerto Rico onto the board. There's also a gentleman from Greensboro, North Carolina, who became quite famous when his speech to the Greensboro City Council defending gun rights uh, went viral. He also starred in a number of NRA, uh, I'm the NRA commercials just in the past two years. The, the nominating committee recommended Mark Robinson for the board. Again, the board did not elect him, did not elect him either. So it's a situation where the ideology counts for a lot, and most NRA members simply have no, have no idea how the organization is run. In the, in the last year, at the annual meeting, there was a bit of an uprising at the members' meeting on the floor, and a number of different people, a few dozen different people, spoke out at different times, demanding more transparency. But the leadership managed to use 
first of all, they pulled in some heavyweights. Marion Hammer, a legendary NRA lobbyist from Florida, hadn't been to an NRA meeting in over a decade, and she came to defend LaPierre. James W. Porter II, a past president of the NRA, whose father is a past NRA president, who presided over the Cincinnati revolt in 1977, he spoke out in favor of LaPierre. And ultimately, the, uh, the leadership was able to shut down the discussion. So you see, you see instances bubbling up of dissent, but it's never been able to coalesce because the NRA has been compared by its own board members to a Soviet-style communist Politburo where all power is concentrated at the top, there's very room for dissent. So the notion of any democratic debate or accountability has long been gone in the NRA. And I think that is what opened the door to this massive corruption and lavish spending for personal reasons in the millions by, by four top officials, according to the charges. So, Frank, uh, one key question, obviously, is what impact is this going to have, particularly on this year's presidential election? The NRA spent, what, $30 million on behalf of Donald Trump in 2016. It's been so key to uh, boosting the campaigns of Republican members of Congress. They've already raised $16.8 million, I believe, through uh, this week for this year's race. Do you see this lawsuit as potentially impacting what the NRA is going to be able to do in the fall election? Well, the lawsuit combined with all the money they've already spent on legal fees, since this dispute opened up, the NRA broke ranks and split with its longtime communications partner, Ackerman McQueen, uh, in Oklahoma, and has since spent over $50 million on legal fees trying to defend itself vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis its former partners, vis-a-vis -vis its rivals, as well as within the organization. So the NRA in 2000 is not as strong financially and doesn't have the money to donate to Republican and candidates and candidates allied with Trump like it did four years ago. So this lawsuit is going to continue to limit their ability to have an impact. The other thing it's going to do, though, Mike, it's going to be seen by hardline gun rights activists, both inside the NRA and outside the NRA. And outside the NRA, you also have a lot of openly extremist groups or, op or white power groups, neo-Nazis, neo-Confederates and others. It's going to feed into a narrative that LaPierre himself has been promoting since the attorney general's investigation even got an inkling and since the New York state shut down something called carry guard, which was insurance for concealed carry holders. That also cost the NRA a lot of money. They see this now as a fulfillment of, of the conspiracy that New York state is out to destroy the Second Amendment and gun rights by destroying the NRA. So I think the NRA is going to be weak at the polls, but this is going to strengthen those armed paramilitaries who are inclined to come out and support President Trump if he were to lose the election and then somehow attempt to keep power. And yet, Frank, you, you uh, at the outset, you said that uh, this lawsuit represents the first potential existential threat to the NRA. How do you think? see things playing out? And why do you see this potentially as a uh, kind of a life-threatening uh, threat to this organization? Because the attorney general's complaint lays out in incredible detail abuses of power on a level that, that, that violate New York law and violate tax law, uh, tremendous amounts of embezzlement. Without any accountability, the NRA has a number of committees set up that are ostensibly designed to audit and make sure there isn't any misallocation of funds or personal enrichment. 
And all of these committees, or the audit committee, the salary committee, have all laid down and shown loyalty to LaPierre and ignored all the evidence of financial malfeasance that the attorney general has collected. Now, LaPierre is saying in Carolyn Meadows, the NRA's new president who replaced Oliver North, this is all political. This is just an attempt to destroy the Second Amendment. But these charges were first laid by Oliver North, as Mike said before, and Ted Nugent and Alan West as the whistleblowers. So they didn't come out of nowhere. And now it seems what I, what I find amazing is Letitia James put in the complaint and has said publicly in her press conference her goal is to dissolve the NRA. I thought that was a stretch until I read the complaint. They have enough evidence, not only in, in malfeasance by four top officials, but also by the oversight committees who entirely laid down and did nothing to try and, to try and curb or even monitor this excessive spending. And last fall, the board also retroactively approved a few of these, uh, a few of these financial arrangements as a way of trying to protect LaPierre. So I think the attorney general has a very good case that the NRA should be dissolved. I don't know if she's going to succeed in that. That seems like a stretch. But at the very least, LaPierre's tenure is going to be over. And that means he, he's, the one thing he's done for the NRA is he's professionalized the organization on some level, right? They're very LGBT-wise friendly in their own staff, right? They're quite efficient in terms of getting things done. They've accomplished a lot uh, legally and politically uh, throughout the nation. So without luck, and they've also, he's managed to, to, to maintain stability in an organization where there's a lot of hotheads and a lot of factions. This is gonna, I think, eliminate his tenure and, and those of his allies. And then we're gonna see a, a great vacuum and a tremendous possible struggle for power within the NRA, which itself could help bring down the organization. Well, Frank, it sounds like you have enough new material to uh, update your book, or at least for the paperback, because uh, there is uh, there is so much here. But uh, anyway, listen, uh, it's a fascinating subject. Um, the book, again, is the NRA, the Unauthorized History. Frank, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Dan. We now have with us our old friend and colleague, John Alter. Uh, John, welcome back to uh, Skullduggery. Great to be here, guys. So a lot of people have been talking this week about the extraordinary Jonathan Swan Axios interview with the president. I assume you watched. What'd you make of it? I did, yes. <laughs> uh, I thought it was a terrific interview. And, you know, he did, unfortunately something that most other interviewers have not done. And that is he followed up and he wasn't intimidated. I have to say, you know, before we talk about Jonathan Swan's talent, the most striking thing about it was the contrast to the many other interviews that have been done with Trump. So with the exception of Chris Wallace's recent interview, an interview by Charlie Sykes, when Charlie Sykes had a radio show in Wisconsin, in 2016, there are almost no other examples of people doing proper interviews with Donald Trump. Now, I'm not minimizing how hard it is to do. I interviewed Trump many years ago, so I don't have any personal experience with this, but I've interviewed six American presidents, and it's really hard to cut in on them. And Trump, it's especially hard to cut in on him 
because he every word out of his mouth is a lie. So you have to not just cut in with your next question. You have to cut in to correct him. So I'm not minimizing how hard it is, but I have to say that most other people who've interviewed him, it's been horrible. It's also worth pointing out that he was extremely, Swan was extremely well prepared. By the yes. way, I should point out that uh, the thing that uh, everyone was going crazy about on Twitter, I think it was trending on Twitter, were his facial expressions because he <laughs> right. couldn't believe the things that were coming yeah. out of Trump's mouth. Yeah. And we'll get into that. But I mean, just one example of how well prepared he was was when um, Trump, when they were talking about mail in voting and Trump continuing to talk about how mail in voting. Uh, is fraudulent. And I think he said, you know, we haven't been doing this for a long, you know, this is new. And, and uh, Swan knew that actually we've been doing this like since the Civil War, which I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, you didn't know that? You didn't know that? I, I mean, my hey, father? No. You'd be amazed at the things know. he doesn't know, John. It, I, hey, he has hey, to be instructed hey, Mark, all the just time. Just tell you what happened. All right. Just to, uh, since you raised it. So, I mean, to me, well, that, that wasn't that, impressive. And Mark, I'm just obvious. talking, just yeah, for producer. Go, go Mark, ahead, Tim. Will you just cut out the part saying I didn't know that? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> so it just, just, just to do, go down history lane for a second. So in 1864, Lincoln was pretty sure that he was going to lose to McClellan, right, who was the general, extraordinarily popular general. And yet Lincoln made it possible for troops who were likely to vote for McClellan overwhelmingly to vote from the field, from the battlefield. And so he arranged for that to happen because he thought it was important for democracy, not only that the election not be canceled, but that people be able to vote if they were serving in the Union Army. And then, you know, that was true for all wars after that. So my father in 1944 was at a an Air Force base, Army Air Corps base in southern Italy, flying what turned out to be 31 missions over Nazi Germany in the fall of 44. And he told me, you know, before he died, uh, that uh, when you know, he came back from one of his missions and he filled out an absentee ballot voting for Franklin Roosevelt for president. I just want to make clear that um, I did know that absentee balloting for the military existed going back to the Civil War, but for the broader population, yeah. <laughs> in, in my defense. All right, moving on. Well, All right. So, what, I, what it was, so the other thing, just while we're on this thing, it's a really important point. Like Trump is trying to make it seem as though, though there's a distinction between absentee ballots, which he's used himself, business people often use them because they travel a lot and vote by mail. And there's there's no difference. You know, well, the, the, no, there, the there is a, wait, wait, John, there is a difference in the sense that for absentee ballots, when you want to vote absentee, you have to apply for a ballot. You know, you go through that process and then you get sent. Well, you, you still do for, for mail in for in some states. In some of the states is that they will send the state election boards will send out ballots to all registered voters who even if you haven't applied. And that's a that's because very those registration lists are not up to date and include people who have died or, you know, who have moved out of state. Right. There is an issue. Right. Okay. so Swan actually Jonathan Swan actually apologized in a tweet. It didn't get very much attention for not acknowledging that there were some states. California is one. 
New Jersey, uh, starting with the pandemic, uh, where I vote, is another where they are, especially after the pandemic that started, there are five states which have only vote by mail. Oregon, uh, Washington, Colorado, Utah, and Utah. Not sure what, by the way, uh, the governor in, in Nevada just uh, now issued a decree that people, they don't have to apply. I think before they had right, to apply. Right, that's right. And, and Trump, is, Trump is suing him for that. So right. at the same time that he's saying that he loves, you know, absentee voting in Florida, where a lot of seniors use it and he needs those votes, he's attacking it in Nevada. Now, He's doing it without there being any evidence of fraud. Now, you can say, well, if you send ballots to everybody that some people who shouldn't vote will vote. But the thing is, if you're dead, you can't sign it. And the ballot is not counted if it's not signed. Right. In the same way, you have to sign in when you vote. And also, if you've already voted at a polling place, it's not counted, which is why they count the absentee ballots after they count the machine ballots. And there are all sorts of other protections. The only fraud that has been associated by this was in a North Carolina campaign where a Republican operative went around and tried to sort of collect people's absentee ballots. And he got busted for that because you're not you're not really allowed to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, so- I know I know Trump has raised the fraud issue, but the part of it this that I think frightens me and a lot of people is just the mechanics of counting the votes. I mean, you look at what happened in New York, where it was it just yesterday they certified winners of a congressional primary in June because of all yes. the mail-in b- ballots. That, to me, is the nightmare scenario, that, that the counting of the ballots and the litigation that will inevitably ensue during that process makes this a train wreck waiting to happen this election. I completely agree. It's, it's frightening because essentially what you're asking a lot of these states to do that you know, haven't had a big uh, vote by mail program is to run two elections at the same time, you know, a mail in election and a, and a conventional election. And a lot of them, their their offices have been hollowed out or in Georgia. You know, there have been all kinds of problems with the secretary of state's office and the Fulton County office board of elections. And there are a number of states that are not well equipped to do this. Large numbers of people vote in presidential elections that don't vote in other elections. So the volume is going to be huge. People need to understand that in a midterm election, you have maybe 80 million Americans voting, 80 to 90 million at the most. And in these elections, like the one they screwed up in New York, a primary election, it's a tiny fraction of uh, eligible voters. But in a presidential election, 125 to 130 million Americans vote. And so it is going to be a huge train wreck. And the only way that it can be avoided is with a, a huge Biden landslide on the East Coast so that, you know, if he if he wins, you know, New York, Florida, you know, uh, Michigan, uh, you know, some other like uh, yeah. seeming battleground states comes in Pennsylvania's declared for, for Biden, then you won't. I mean, Trump might try to litigate, but everybody will laugh at him. Then it's a problem, a huge problem. Huge All right. Well, that, that is a good segue 
to the state of the race right now. So let's step back. We're 90 days out. And in a couple of weeks, we'll have the beginning of the party conventions, such as they are, such as they will be. Where do things stand right now? How much do you think is baked in? And what are the trends that you see going forward in, this ter- in, in terms of this election? So I think a lot of it is baked in. And the history of it is that often the races are, are well set by, by this point and very hard to change the dynamic. So while it is possible for Donald Trump to win and he's getting a lot of foreign help now, you know, these senators have come forward and said that they've seen these classified briefings that show that there's already a lot of intrusion. There's going to be a lot of voter suppression uh, and there's going to be a lot of confusion over mail-in ballots. So Trump can use all of those to win, but I think that's the only way he can win. I don't see a path for him otherwise. So I basically think confusion or essentially uh, stealing the election are his, his only real ways to win now, because to close a gap, you need, there's a third way. I mean, Biden could show up at the three debates and be truly, you know, incompetent. And if he's drooling, then Trump can win if Trump delivers a good performance. So he could turn it around at the debates. That was not the Joe Biden who showed up to debate Bernie Sanders, who was quite good and held his own against Sanders, who's a good debater. So if that Biden shows up, I think the election's virtually over. How do we get here? I mean, what are the how much of this is Trump fatigue? How much of it is just the pandemic and the sense that the country is out of control as that's the latest you know, the polling question now. We used to say wrong track, right track. Now the question is, is the country out of control? And 70% of the country says it is. So, so what, is the, what are the dynamics here that led us to this? Well, the first thing that people need to understand is that Donald Trump is the only president in the history of polling who never broke 50% in approval ratings. And so, you know, unpopular presidents of the past, like Jimmy Carter, you know, I've written this book about is, is you know, he was over 70% at one point in his presidency. Trump never broke 50%. He lost the popular vote. So more than half of the country has never liked him. So he always had a very narrow path to reelection. And yes, he did get elected the last time, but it was always going to be, a, he always had to thread the needle you know, by winning the same states that he wasn't expected to win the last time, like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. And he had no margin for error going back four years. So he's always had a, a, a tough road. And then he worsened it for himself by doing nothing to expand his base. He just kept doubling down over and over again on his base. And his base is very intense. And it's great to have a base and to have no primary opposition. That's very helpful for an incumbent president. He has total control over the Republican Party, but it's a shrinking political party. And white men between uh, 45 and 65, which is the core of his base, no college education, they are a shrinking part of this country. And if you're a good politician, which I don't think Trump is, even though he got himself elected, He has some political talent, like he's got some good instincts about where a story's going and he knows how to drive a message through repetition, which are important political skills. 
But in, in the larger sense, he's a bad politician because a good politician starts with his base and then he expands the base, reaches out, pulls other people in, moves to the center, which is where American elections are determined. So even if the economy had stayed good, everybody is now saying the way history will be written is, oh, if it wasn't for COVID, he would have been reelected. No, I don't think he would have been because he never expanded his base. If you throw on top of that, that the economy is is in recession and that he clearly botched uh, response to COVID. Look, crises are about how you respond. They're not about the crisis itself. And every other industrialized country in the world and a lot of non-industrialized countries responded better than the United States. And there's no way to hide that from the voters. There's no way to get around that. And that's why I think his goose is pretty cooked. You know, John, one reason I wanted to have you on this week is uh, you wrote this great book a number of years ago, The Defining Moment, about the uh, FDR's election in the first 100 days of his uh, administration. And it strikes me that the proper historical analogy for this year is 1932, where the COVID pandemic is the Great Depression. In terms of disruption of the lives of the American public, it is equivalent. Um, And Hoover was identified with the lack of response or his inability to cure the Great Depression during the 1932 election that hung over him then. It hung over him in history. And I think Trump is in a similar situation with COVID and the uh, economic dislocation it's caused. I think that's a great point. The other thing that is very similar is that FDR was an FDR, by which I mean he was seen as too weak to even run a good campaign for president because the American public knew that he was crippled. They didn't know how bad it was because they never saw pictures of him in a wheelchair. They didn't see him in a wheelchair, but they all knew he had polio. And he, you know, was seen as he was nominated on the fourth ballot. He was seen as a a weak candidate. And and there are a lot of comparisons there to Biden. Also, he wasn't seen as being the brightest person the Democrats could put up. He was at this inflection point and he was a good politician and he reached out, he expanded his base. Roosevelt did. The one difference I would say is that Hoover did not have these really committed Hooverites. You know, there were no equivalents of MAGA. He didn't have a base. Hoover. Yeah. He, he didn't really have a base in the same way that Trump does. So that would be an advantage that Trump has over Hoover. However, the um, middle class suburbanite, you know, had no reason to ditch Hoover, uh, you know, the sort of more prosperous businessman. And now I think a lot of them do have a reason to to dump Trump. Let's talk about, John, let's talk a little bit more about the FDR-Biden comparison in this particular moment. So Biden, you know, they talk about his basement strategy, but actually he's been proposing a lot of fairly bold domestic policies. His rhetoric, I think, is not as stirring. I mean, build back better is okay, but I don't know that it's uh, Rooseveltian. But there's another thing that I remember you writing about in the defining moment that I was thinking about in terms of Biden, because one of the things that FDR had and that I think Biden has and Trump doesn't have is a sense of empathy and ability to use that to develop a relationship with the American people. And both of them 
I think you argued that FDR developed that empathy by overcoming polio, dealing with that huge physical challenge and understanding suffering. And of course, Biden did the same way with a different challenge in his life, losing his wife and his baby girl. So is that an important uh, comparison in terms of Biden's political abilities? Yeah, I think both of them are important comparisons. So I, I would disagree a little bit on Build Back Better. I think Build Back Better is an excellent slogan. And I think next year, if Biden wins, you're going to see, you know, Biden's BBB program all over the place. And it's a new deal for America, which started at the 1932 convention. When you when you think about it, you know, a new deal, like a new bargain. Is that is that that great of a slogan? It's, it's definitely mm-hmm. not any worse than Build Back Better. And actually, Biden is being more specific about the structural change that he would push for in his first year than Roosevelt was. Roosevelt was much more vague in the 1932 campaign. But I think your empathy point is a really good one. And with Roosevelt, sort of at the subtextual level, it was, you know, if he can stand up and walk again after polio, which people wrongly thought he could walk, then maybe we can stand up as a country out of this depression. You know, he's giving us hope that he can heal us, right? The way he was healed. And this is why I think Biden's rhetoric of healing is is very effective. The country wants to change the channel on the ugliness. And they're ready for a more empathetic, but also just inclusive approach. You know, one of Trump's great political mistakes is that he, he didn't understand at any level that he was the president of all Americans and that Americans expect their president, even if he's very partisan some of the time, to on other occasions reach out to people who are very different. And so this most recent example with John Lewis, like John Lewis insulted Trump, didn't show up at his inauguration, and Trump wasn't a big enough man to look past that and say something nice when he died. The same thing with McCain, right? So, and there, it's amazing how many Republicans I've run into who, when I ask them why they can't support Trump anymore, they say, well, you know, it goes back to the way he treated John McCain. There's a certain decency that people expect in their presidents, and Biden has it, and Trump doesn't. I mean, look uh, at the response during the, the, the Swan interview when he brings up John Lewis. And the first thing he says is, well, he didn't show up for my inauguration. <laughs> I mean, right. It's, and it's all about him. About, to I talk just think about that his this, contribution to civil rights. I mean, it was pretty right. astonishing. Right. And so what happened is people were so traumatized by his election in 2016 and by his bullying and most people, um, they when you know, they see a bully, they don't really know what to do. And they tend to ascribe like great political power and authority to the bully, especially if they've been traumatized. But he's been a crappy politician all along. And people need to like get out of their, you know, defensive crouch and there and stop analyzing through the, this worry lens and do a real cold-eyed analysis. And a cold-eyed analysis suggests that he is highly likely to lose the election. And is what is the percent that you know he could sneak through again? Is it 5%? I don't know exactly what it is. But there's, he is in a world of hurt politically right now. 
And, you know, I don't see how he gets out of it except by cheating. Who's Biden going to pick as Veep? Well, the latest reporting is that it's down to Kamala Harris and Susan Rice, that uh, Karen Bass, who was coming on strong, that, you know, there's just too much stuff that's coming out about her praising communists and Scientologists and yeah. visiting Cuba over and over again. And The Cuba thing, uh, uh, you know, once that, in Florida, that's not going to fly. So break that down for us, the two, Kamala Harris and Susan Rice, because my gut tells me that Biden would want to pick Susan Rice because he would feel more simpatico with her, to use his word, and he respects her and thinks that she understands governing, even though she's not held elective office or run a campaign, and he's less, he's more distrustful of Kamala Harris. So how do you think that, but there are pros and cons on both sides. How, how do you assess it? Well, I, uh, I wrote a piece recently, the case for Susan Rice. I mean, I think she would be his best choice. And the, you know, the arguments used against her basically boil down to Benghazi and the fact that she hasn't run for elective office. I think the Benghazi argument is really silly. You know, the idea that any undecided voter is going to go, oh, she used CIA talking points on Face the Nation, you know, many years ago. I was going to vote for Biden. I guess I'm going for Trump now. You know, it's a cul-de-sac. It's a dead end for Trump. Every day that he tries to resurrect the Benghazi scandal is another day when he's not making a more potent argument against Joe Biden. And people, you know, it might get his base revved up for a week, but that's a week off the clock. The other objection to Susan Rice is a more serious one, and that's that she's never run for elective office. And if you're a politician like Joe Biden, you respect other politicians who subjected themselves to the voters. And you, you're not fully confident that when the curly burly starts, they're going to be able to stand up. So you like, you know, LBJ used to say, you know, I wish some, somebody around here is talking about the best and the brightest, you know, so-called best and the brightest advisors. I wish they had run for sheriff, you know, and Susan Rice is kind of a best and brightest type. She's a former Rhodes Scholar, you know, who served as ambassador to the UN, national security advisor. But the difference, there's two reasons why I think that that argument is not that important this year. 2020 is a different kind of campaign. You know, if it was another year without COVID, you could go, well, Susan Rice, she's never worked a rope line. She's never, we don't know whether she can give a rousing speech. Well, there are no rope lines and rousing speeches this year, right? So all that matters, the entire campaign is going to be, how do you do answering tough questions on television? And she does really well at that. She's really presidential in the way she comes across. And she has a lot of experience in the executive branch and with foreign leaders that Biden really needs because he's not going to have the time to travel around the world, restoring America's global standing. I, so in terms of governing, in terms uh, of governing, I think she would be the best choice. She is a little bit of a lightning rod, as Dana Milbank pointed out recently. And right. maybe she will maybe she will be kind of more Velcro than Teflon, you know. 
But I think she's got more, more baggage than your uh, that goes beyond Benghazi. I mean, she was the national security advisor for the Obama administration. The record on Russia was not great. She's the one who told national security uh, officials to stand down from crafting responses to the Russian uh, attack on the 2016 election. You know, there are serious issues about Syria and a lot of other foreign policy issues under Obama. So I, I think there's some bad. I, I agree. I agree with you generally, Mike, but I do think it'll be hard for the Trump campaign to prosecute yeah. that case and get, yeah. you know, the stand, not right. giving the. Yeah, right, the, right. The, the giving the stand down <laughs> order on Russia. No, 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 because the right. Way, no, I mean, they're, they're not voting issues, Mike. They're not voting. They're not voting issues. So there's a distinction between. I think there are also some issues about her with Paul Kagame of Rwanda. You know, there yeah, are yeah, issues seriously. for people like you and me that are, are legitimate issues to look into. That are, you can write good stories about. They're not voting issues. And so when you look at these people, you have to go, what's a voting issue? A voting issue is, do I trust you on television? Or do I think that, and this is you know, my own feeling about Kamala Harris, you come across as a little opportunistic and a little facile on TV compared to Susan Rice. So I just look at it like, okay, how do they come across on television? Which one can you believe would work better with Biden after the election? And that's why I come down on the side of on the side of rice. But I agree with you that these these other issues, they'll, they'll come up. You know, there'll be stories written about them. They're not going to derail her the way uh, other yeah. stories would. I, I personally yeah. would really like to see a uh, Susan Rice, Mike Pence, vice presidential debate. I think their styles yeah, are, are so different. Although, I think really- actually, I think Harris would be a Harris Pence debate would be pretty interesting to watch as well. I mean, she's well, she's okay, no slouch. Be, but Harris, Harris would be. But I mean, I was very unimpressed by her in the Kavanaugh hearings. Like she she seemed at one point like she she really had something. She started firing yeah. all these questions about his relationship yeah. with some lawyer. And then she had no reveal. She had nothing there. And that's the worst kind of thing that you can do is prosecute something where you don't have the facts on your side. And and I just I, I uh, my gut tells me that Rice would make her a better matchup. Also, Harris, in terms of her background, you know, it just came out recently that when she was attorney general and they they were asking her to side with those who wanted to do some de-incarceration, you know, to limit some of the number of prisoners in overcrowded California jails. And she was adamantly opposed to that. So I don't think that hurts her with Biden because apparently he kind of likes the fact that she was a prosecutor, but I'm not sure it makes her, you know, the right candidate for 2020, that there's all these stories about people she prosecuted that may or may not, you know, have been prosecuted properly uh, that, that will come out. We know you got to go, but I just wanted to bring up one other uh, matter. You did uh, this uh, film documentary uh, a few years ago on Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill, uh, the two great columnists in New York during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Pete Hamill just passed away. A few words on uh, who he was and uh, why he should be remembered. So I got to know uh, Pete Hamill uh quite well over the last five years because uh, I co-directed a documentary that's on HBO um, called Breslin and Hamill Deadline Artists. And Pete was one of the most generous, uh, wise, 
people I think I've ever met. Um, he, he, he was an inspiration to not one, but two generations of reporters and writers. He was uh, a uh, gifted prose stylist and, and, and novelist, um, but he always spoke for people from the streets and, and whether they were whether they had similar backgrounds to him or not, he could tell their stories and he really embodied New York. He was one of the great New York uh, figures when they did a list of the greatest uh, figures in the history of New York, hundred greatest figures, P. Hamill made the list. So it's a real, a real loss. And I hope he inspires people uh, in, uh, in local journalism for years to come. Well, and the doc is still, you can um, get it on yes, HBO On Demand. It's a great documentary. I saw it. Also learned a lot about uh, Pete Hamill's interesting and in, uh, love life, right? Didn't he date uh, Jackie Onassis for a while? Yes, and Shirley MacLaine and Linda Ronstadt. So he could work the Upper East Side and the Lower East Side. <laughs> Not bad. All right. Hey, John, we will have you back in about another month or so when your next book, your new book, his very best uh, about Jimmy Carter, comes out. So um, we'll Fantastic. look forward Thanks to that, guys. Thanks to Yahoo News White House correspondent Hunter Walker, author Frank Smythe, and journalist Jonathan Alter for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.